You know, as we prepare for the season of Advent, we prepare for a season where people will consider gift giving. And church, I would encourage you to consider the song that we just sang, which is really what our hearts and minds ought to be tuned towards during this season. Your only son, no sin to hide, but you have sent him from your side. He was given for us. And this year, as we consider the themes that Christmas brings, I was so lost I should have died, but you have brought me to your side. Jesus was sent, we were brought to be led by your staff and rod so that we could be called lambs of God. Amen. If we make it through this Advent season and we have not seriously considered that again and again and again, this season is a complete waste of our time. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Well, as I prepare to preach this morning, just to give you an idea of where we're going to be going over the next few weeks, um, Jeremy and I thought as we end the year, um, these next two weeks, we would take some time to discuss with you the qualifications for an elder and for a deacon. Um, the biblical qualifications for an elder and for a deacon, not just at Christ the King Church, but at every church. What God demands of his men who will serve him in the pulpit and governing the service ministries of the church. Um, that'll be the 28th today. We'll talk about elders next week. On the 5th, we'll talk about deacons. And then on, excuse me, on the 5th, we'll talk about deacons. And then on the 12th, uh, Chad Blowers is going to bring us another word about missions. Chad has had an opportunity to speak back in, I think it was the 1st of September, or close to the beginning of September, as I was laid up with COVID. And, or what I think was COVID. Anyway, um, Chad's going to be bringing us the second part of that message and uh, sharing a little bit more with us about the importance of missions and the global view of the church. Um, the following week, the 19th, I will be picking back up with First Peter. Jeremy and I think that it's important that we sing of Advent, speak of Advent, um, but as the diet of the church, we just continue with our regularly scheduled preaching routine. We'll be jumping right back into uh, 1 Peter 2, talking about slaves. And what an appropriate topic to be discussing at the season of Advent, as we've just sung. Uh, we were released from our slavery and our bondage to be sons and daughters, to be lambs of God. So I think we'll pull out a lot of Advent themes. But this morning, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at the qualifications for overseers in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read the text and then ask God's blessing on our time. Please remember that these are the words of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore... An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Father, as we open your word this morning, all of us desiring to be fed from it, I pray that you would bless this time. May the word of God prove fruitful as you have promised to us that it will. May it not return void. May it strengthen the hearts and the souls of your children here. May it awaken wicked and evil thoughts in those in the room who are not your children, heaping condemnation and especially conviction upon them. And may they see, as we here who love you have seen, that Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior. And to all who call on Him, they may become sons and daughters, lambs of God. Lord, let your word prove effective. Please be with me, a weak and incapable vessel. Lord, at the time that I've devoted to this, I pray that you would yield fruit from tenfold. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, over the next few weeks, we are going to talk about elders and deacons and who qualifies as an elder and a deacon. Jeremy and I have spoken to you all about the importance of deacons over the last few months. Um, and we're going to turn our attention to that office next week. Um, we have seen the momentum swing in the last year with the election and everything that's gone on from a MAGA movement, this Make America Great movement, this rightward swing, um, to more of a socialistic surge or what appears to be a socialistic surge in America today. And as pressure on the church seems to be increasing daily and perhaps most important as God seems to be creating a migration that is bringing in saints looking for a city of refuge, we could, and Jeremy and I both think, uh, this will increase the numbers of our church, perhaps greatly. We think that Christ the King should begin the process of evaluating and vetting men, not only for the diaconate, but also for the pastorate. And this is where you come in, church. Uh, many of you are familiar with Vody Bauckham's work, What He Must Be. It's a book written to fathers exhorting them to consider today the man that their daughter will one day marry. It is a fine book and one that I would recommend to every dad of daughters and every dad of sons who would like them to be marriageable material one day. Those of you who have read Vody know that, like any seasoned pastor, he writes about very specific issues and is able to apply those broadly to the greater body of Christ. His main point is that a male must be more than a male if he plans on marrying Vody's daughters. Here's one particularly good thought. Vody says, A young man who is worthy of a wife will have a clear understanding of the covenantal nature of marriage. He will also have a healthy apprehension when he thinks about the magnitude of his responsibility should he assume the role of a husband and a father. He must know the weight that he is taking on his shoulders and be willing to accept it. He must be a man who is willing to endure hardship for the sake of his family should he be called upon to do so. This week and the next, church, I am asking you to consider your covenantal responsibilities in selecting a man or men who will lead as shepherds 
and servants as deacons. For years, the church has considered the appointment of a man to the office of overseer perhaps too flippantly. If I don't like him or his preaching, I can just go to another church. This is not how God desired that his church should be cared for. We are to give our covenantal consent and God will hold us accountable for whom we select. Remember, we get the leaders that represent us most well. So, what must he be if he is going to pastor our church? Well, we've been in 1 Peter for the last several months. Um, we are going to take some time to look at 1 Timothy this morning just to give you a little background on what was going on in Timothy's day and what Paul was writing to him about. I'm going to read just the first few verses of the first chapter. This is verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The issue that Paul was writing to Timothy about centered on false teaching. It centered on those who were teaching things that created division in the church. Wolves had come in amongst the sheep, as Paul knew they would, he articulated in the book of Acts. And these wolves held teaching positions. They were teaching what? Myths, endless genealogies, and vain discussion. Well, what do we see here? We see a religious syncretism that wanted Christian teaching to be married to the myths of the day, including Judaism, which Paul discusses with Timothy, is why many of these wanted to become also teachers of the law. Not the crew that you would want leading your church. Paul sends Timothy to get things into shape and to remind the church of Ephesus of godly Christian behavior. In chapter 3, he addresses the virtues of a truly qualified man or men for the ministry. Just a point of application before we jump to 1 Timothy 3. This is incredibly relevant for us in our day. What exactly was Paul dealing with here? He was dealing with the vain discussions, people wanting to be teachers of the law, the endless genealogies. He was dealing with all of this ridiculous false teaching that came from the myths of the day. And that too, church, is what we see in our day. Now, just to be fair, this has gone on in the church for a long time. Back in the early 1900s in the United States, there was a very prevalent teaching amongst fundamentalist churches, what we would call today very conservative or right-leaning churches. This teaching, which is a myth and a heresy, is known as the sin of Ham. What is the sin of Ham? Well, it is a myth that says Ham, when he sinned against his father Noah by viewing him naked and getting a curse from his father once his father realized what he had done, the curse that God gave him 
was that his skin turned black. Now, we know that Ham's descendants did move towards the African continent. That is true. But this is a myth, and it is foolish. Not only that, but it leads to what? Endless genealogies. What? We've got to trace heritage all the way back. Oh, I know where your sin comes from. I can trace your heritage all the way back to this continent. Not only what, is the, what does it amount to? It amounts to vain discussion. What does this solve? What does this help? What does this really answer? You start with a falsehood and then you wind up in vain discussion and we're not helping anybody. The church in America for years promoted this doctrine. Now, we today know that this is ridiculous and we know that a church should never promote anything like this, but we're now tolerating as the people of God in America today the exact opposite heresy on the other side. The right is not promoting this anymore. Bob Jones University at one time had accepted this as valid teaching. Since then, they have come out and repented that they ever had anything to do with this teaching. Now, I've got a lot of respect for somebody who will come out in public and repent and say, you know what, that was wrong. That was foolish. I should have never believed that. Amen. Praise God. Welcome back into fellowship. But now we've got churches and organizations and colleges and seminaries today that are promoting the exact same heresy on the opposite side. The sin of Ham today is not the black man, it's the white man. The sin of Ham today is not that you're colored on the outside, but that you're colored on the inside. You can't see your racism, but it's there. Now church, I know that we've spoken about social justice in the past. You've heard me speak against the social justice movement and how wicked it is. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I want to be an equal opportunity offender. It is, in all of our minds, ridiculous that we would think that someone's skin color is a sign of their sin. So why do we tolerate it? Why do we tolerate it on either side of the aisle? Why? Why is it unthinkable today that in the South there could still be pockets of KKK groups around. Now, there's not many of them, but you all know there's neo-Nazi groups out there. There's KKK groups. And we think that is just unthinkable. How could you be so backwards as to think something like that? And yet, if a man like myself was to walk the streets of inner city Chicago, I would be taking my own life in my own hands. And why? Because I've got the wrong skin color. Nobody thinks that's racism. Nobody thinks that's evil. It is just as wicked in the eyes of God, and the church today is accepting it. Beloved, as we begin to think about biblically what God calls a man to be in order to lead the church of God, both from the pulpit and in service ministry, we must consider well what they believe, what they teach, what they hold to. Because Timothy had a mess on his hands, and Paul said, you've got to go make this right. Part of you making it right is to know what the problem is. Myths, endless genealogies, vain discussion. The second half of the answer is let's find some men who actually are qualified. I want you to appoint elders and I want them to look like this. This is where 1 Timothy chapter 3 comes in. We're going to begin in verse 1. Normally I have an outline for you. Today I'm just going to go phrase by phrase. We're going to look at each topic in turn. I hope this won't take too long, uh, but I want to make sure that we look at each one of these qualities or virtues of this man, who he must be in order to be our pastor. The first word that we see, important in 
chapter 3, verse 1, is the word overseer. This is one of many terms used of leadership in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 5, which we will get to perhaps in another few years, um, says, So I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Let me read that again. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. There's three different terms in there that give us a description of who the man of God, the pastor of God, should be. He is to be an elder. This is the Greek word presbyteros. That's where the Presbyterians get the name of their denomination. Overseer, episkopos, also where the Episcopalians get their name from. And shepherd, poimeneo. Now these three different titles give us three different ideas of what the elder's responsibility is. The elder, for example, gives wisdom. That's why his name lends itself toward being an elder. Now we know from the book of Job that age doesn't always promote wisdom, but it is typical that as someone grows in their age, they will accumulate more wisdom than the younger crowd. And so the term elder is often used to describe the man of God. Overseer, what do they do? They watch over souls. They're to keep close watch over the flock. Not only do they need wisdom, they need to keep their eyes on God's sheep. They need to be good shepherds in that way. And speaking of shepherd, what does he do? Well, he feeds and he protects the flock. So an overseer is an elder, is also a shepherd. I believe that these terms are used synonymously in the scriptures, but with a little variation to give you different ideas of what the pastor's responsibility is. If you plan on being a pastor, you'll have to watch over more souls than just your own. You'll have to prove your merit for the pastorate by watching over your wife and your children well, and then you'll have to keep watch over others. You will have to give wisdom you will be required to learn extensively, not just in what you love, not just in theological training, but maybe even in things that you don't love so that you can minister to the needs of your sheep. As a dad, I've got six children and one of my daughters is very interested in writing and she wants to learn to be a writer one day. I never grew up with an interest in wanting to be a writer, but I want to be a good shepherd of my flock at home. And so I'm learning how to be a good writer. I'm learning how to create story arcs and think about mind mapping and things like that so I can instruct my daughter. I'm not any good at it, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Why? Because she senses this is where God's calling her. It's part of her life's calling. She wants to write. So I want to shepherd her well in that. I may not be any good at it, but I am required to help. You will also have to feed the sheep. This is Excuse me, this will require you to give them their food in season and out of season, which means you may need to be storing up for those rainy days. Um, we live in a country today where every food that you could want to eat is always in season. Now, I don't know a lot about gut bacteria and what's going wrong with everybody's stomachs these days, but I do wonder, with our food system, we always have... Every food is always in season. You don't move through eating food that's in season if that's part of the problem with what's going on with our guts. Now, that may seem like a silly illustration, 
But an imbalanced diet in the soles of the sheep leads to problems. An imbalanced diet in the soles of Christ's sheep leads to problems. Was that churches when I was a young man? And we heard a lot about marriage. Oh, that was the favorite topic. We always preached on marriage. Heard a lot about creation. Creation needs to be in this many days, right? Uh, heard a lot about Advent. Oh, the Christmas stories and all of that stuff. Always heard those topical messages. And those aren't wrong. They're all true and good. But Christ's sheep need a balanced diet from all of the Word of God. Not just the New Testament, but from the Old. Not just from the narrative passages, but also from the history passages. Also from the genealogies. Also from the Psalter. We need the food of God in all of Scripture. And the man of God who's going to serve as a pastor must be able to give the sheep their food in season as well as protect the sheep even at the cost of his own life. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires what? The Bible tells us it's a noble task. This is the same word from 1 Peter 2 that we recently went through, our word kalos. It means honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Remember, it also means beautiful, excellent, choice, surpassing, commendable, admirable. Have you ever thought about those who desire to pastor God's sheep in that way? If they desire to pastor God's sheep, they desire something that is beautiful, something that is excellent, something that is choice, something that is surpassing or commendable or admirable. Men of God in this room, if you want to pastor, you're going to have a target on your back. The enemy will try to destroy your family. He will try to discredit your ministry. He will pollute your mind with doubt. He will try and make you unqualified. In addition to that, the world will hate you. Your church will often disagree with you. You will be misunderstood and you will often feel very alone. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you can do anything else other than pastoring, do that. If you can do anything else other than pastoring, do that. But if you sense that there is nothing else that you can do, that God wants you to do, but be one of His shepherds, you have set your sight on something that is of surpassing greatness, that is beautiful, that is excellent. So, men, don't be a pansy. Don't be afraid. If you desire to be a pastor, set your eyes on it and pray for it. And then talk to Jeremy or I about it. Talk to us about it. Years ago when I was at Basswood, a dear friend of mine who's now the pastor of Maynardville Fellowship over in Union County, Tennessee, just one county over from us, Matt Cook, talked to me about being a pastor. He said, Chris, do you have a desire in your heart? He didn't know, but he sensed that there was something in me that wanted to shepherd God's people. And I said, yeah, Matt, I do, but I don't want to be assuming. I don't want to tell people. You know, the, the church is supposed to raise up the men of God. And he said, yes, I agree, they are. Now, as your older brother, I want you to go talk to the pastors about it. And I said, I, I mean, I don't know. He's like, nope, I want you to go talk to them about it. And I did. I sat down with Ronnie and Matt. We had a really good conversation about it. They said, Chris, we know. We've sensed that that's something that is on your heart. 
We'll pray with you about it, and we'll see what God does. Don't be a pansy. Don't be afraid. If you desire it, set your eyes on it. Pray for it. Talk to us about it. In verse 2, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This does not mean that God's shepherd never sins. Please, put that out of your mind. We have to be good examples of sinners to you so we can show you what repentance looks like, right? You need to know how to repent, and you ought to see your shepherds repenting as an example for you, right? But, and if everyone who aspired to the office of overseer could be needed to be sinless, then everyone would be disqualified at the start. This refers to observable conduct. It refers to what is seen and noticed by all. This is likely the heading for the virtues or qualities that will follow. And we'll dig into this one a little bit more here in just a minute. The overseer must be above reproach. Also, the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, the man of one woman. Now, we've got to ask ourselves some questions here. What is Paul requiring Timothy to look for when he looks for God's shepherd? What is he requiring him to look for? Does Paul's virtue that he mentions here of a man of one woman require that the man of God be married? No, I don't think that it does. For that would disqualify Paul and Timothy from leading in the service of God's people. However, marriage is the best window that we've got into a man's shepherding abilities. You want to know how the man's going to shepherd God's people? How does he handle a home? How does he care for the people in his own home and under his own roof? Marriage is likely assumed to be the norm in the scriptures. Yes, Paul talks about the gift of celibacy and that God gives that to some people, but the scriptures themselves all the way through assume that marriage will be the norm of God's people. So, then is Paul prohibiting polygamy? Is he prohibiting you from marrying more than one wife? I think it's likely he is, but does it only mean that? Widespread acceptance of legalized polygamy in those days was not in vogue, right? If you were legally trying to marry more than one woman back in those days, you could be a loose man or you could be a loose woman. That was very common. But to want to marry legally more than one person, it wasn't as common back then. Does Paul then prohibit divorce and remarriage? Now, this is an area where there is some disagreement in the church of Jesus. One of the things that Jeremy and I have given to you all as a vision for our church is that as the church of Christ the King, we would be radically committed to the core truths of Scripture while being liberally minded towards secondary matters. Okay? There's going to be some matters of first importance. The gospel, Jesus Christ, His deity and humanity, the hypostatic union, all of those things we're going to keep at the top tier. Now, when it comes to the issue of divorce and remarriage, I will say that there's disagreement among the church of Jesus, and I'll confess to you that the majority of Reformed people will disagree with me on my perspective when it comes to divorce and remarriage. I believe here that Paul is prohibiting divorce and remarriage for the men who would serve as God's shepherds. Traditional Reformed thinking does allow two exceptions when it comes to divorce. 
divorce is always prohibited for God's people except in two cases. They would say in traditional Reformed teaching, infidelity, and that comes from Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7, the abandonment rule. If she's abandoned, uh, then she can get a divorce from her husband because he abandoned her and she has no one to care for her. I hold a minority position in the church of Jesus called the permanence of marriage view. I believe that there's not a legitimate cause for divorce in the world today, that God instituted marriage as a permanent union between a man and a woman. Those covenantal responsibilities are before God no matter when in life they made those covenant responsibilities. When they made those covenant commitments to one another, they were permanent. I mean, think about it this way. If you had a pastor who married the two of you and that pastor one day apostatized and said, I'm no longer a Christian, you know, I never believed in Jesus, that doesn't invalidate the marriage that happened in that place, right? So even a, a person who officiates, and Augustine gets into this, I don't have time to go into it right now, um, even a person who officiates can't delegitimize the marriage itself that had happened before God and that it was a real marriage. But if we really dig down, what was Paul fighting hardest against? What was he trying to combat against uh, those, in those days, Timothy that was going to have to deal with in Ephesus? It was widespread unfaithfulness in marriage. It was widespread unfaithfulness in marriage. If you cannot maintain faithfulness to one woman, you are a man with a divided heart and are not qualified to serve as an elder. There were men running around all over Ephesus and all over the Grecian world who it was accepted. If I have a wife, that's the girl that I have babies with and then I'm going to go and I'm going to sleep with other girls. It was very common. And Paul said, no, we're not going to have anybody like that serving as an elder in our churches. This perspective assumes marriage. It rules out polygamy. It rules out divorce and remarriage. And it requires pastors to have exemplary marriages. If beyond reproach is the category for all of these virtues, this understanding seems to fit the bill. Now, before I go on, I will say this. There are people in the Reformed Church, in the Church of Jesus Christ, who in the past have had divorces. And do you know what? Jesus forgives us for every single sin in our lives. Jesus forgives us for every wrong in our lives. In the South, there is a stigma surrounding this idea of divorce. And I understand the importance of holding marriage high, but in creating sub-communities of people, well, those people have been divorced. Those people did drugs. She had an abortion. This is wickedness. We cannot become partisan in our minds based on what people have done in the past. For this reason, in the church of Jesus, there are no black sheep. Let me say that again. In the church of Jesus, there are no black sheep. This is why, church. In the church of Jesus, there are only black sheep. There are only black sheep. Sinners are the only ones who get into the kingdom of God. If you don't need Jesus, you're not a part of His kingdom. If you don't need Jesus, you're not a part of His church. And the good news is, every sheep who comes to Jesus in their dirtiness and their filth and their blackness is covered by His blood and washed white as snow. Every one of us. Everything that we've done in the past. My wife is the only person that I've ever been married to. My wife is the only person 
that I've ever had intimacy and romance with. But when I was a young man, I committed unfaithfulness against my wife today more times than I can count. And God hates that. And He's washed every bit of it white as snow through the blood of Jesus. You can repent today of everything that you've done because Jesus' blood is that effective for us. It is. And God wants every man, regardless of what's happened in their past, to serve in His church. Every man can serve in exemplary ways as a leader, as a servant. I was talking to John too about this last night, and we were talking about deacons. A deacon, and we'll talk about this more next week, is to help govern the service of the church. But every saint is called to be a servant. If you see a man who wants to be a pastor of a church, but he doesn't want to pick up the chairs and the tables, he don't need to be God's pastor. He needs to be willing to get down and clean up stuff in the floor. He needs to be willing to help out the ladies in the kitchen. He needs to be willing to do whatever it takes because he is to be an example to the flock. That's what's required of the man of God. He's also required from verse 2 to be sober-minded. It's the word temperate in some translations. Clearly, this refers to the amount of alcohol one consumes. That's likely what Paul was addressing. But it is a prohibition against drunkenness of any kind including drug use. It's also a prohibition against excesses. Can you get drunk in your thoughts and in your minds off of your perfect cup of tea, off of your cup of coffee that you've got to have every single day, off of a sandwich made just right? Lewis tells the story in one of his books, I think it's in Mere Christianity, of the woman who sins so mightily against God, not because she wants too little or too much, but because she's so addicted to a perfect slice of bread that she won't accept anything else. That's not the man of God. That's not who he's supposed to be. I'm told, and by the way, I've, I've got a lot of trouble with this one, okay? What I mean by that is this could be a difficult one for Chris to have to deal with, being sober-minded. What do you mean by that, Chris? Well, I'm told that I'm a skinny man in a fat man's, or excuse me, I'm a fat man in a skinny man's body, okay? That's what I'm told, right? I have two livers, I've got three stomachs, and whatever I put into my body, I never show any signs of it, right? I can put anything down, and nobody could know. I've got to be a good shepherd of my soul. I've got to be a good shepherd of my body. Every one of us, regardless we are fearfully and wonderfully made, beloved. God made your bodies to react to a variety of stimuli. A touch, a hug, a kiss, a good drink, good food, visual stimulation, lovemaking. There's a chemical that's released in your brain at these times. It's called dopamine, and it can be addictive. You get a high off of it. I read an article years ago. They were talking about the level of pornography use and how prevalent it is among young men today. Regular pornography use releases a level of dopamine in your brain, I'm told, that can exceed that of those who use methamphetamines. The man of God is to be temperate. He's to be sober-minded. He is to watch carefully over his own heart and his own soul. He cannot be addicted to drugs, alcohol. He cannot use pornography at all. He must spurn such things and be our next virtue, 
self-controlled. In many ways, this is a synonym for those who are sober-minded. Are you a man who governs himself, or are you governed by what happens to you and around you? If you're headed home from work, and you get texts from the wife, they reveal that it's been a rough day at the house. The boys are wild. The girls are all complaining. Your wife is having trouble submitting, and there's no beer in the fridge. Men, does that change your demeanor at all? Does that change your demeanor at all? Or are you self-controlled? Michael Foster, who I love on this topic, calls this an internal versus an external locus of control. What changes the controlling agent in the man's heart? Ladies, this applies to you too. A man with an internal locus of control tends to, Foster says, be an alpha, have better conversations, has better sex, deal with less anxiety and fear, generally having a happier and more steady life. On the contrary, those with an external locus of control are guided by what happens outside of them. They're guided by worry and fear. They deal with depression and unhealthy introspection. They're whiners and complainers and are always chasing girls. One of my favorite stories of a man who just exemplified an internal locus of control is the story of Stonewall Jackson. The historical marker database for the Battle of Manassas, this is the sign out in the field where the Battle of Manassas took place, recounts this story. It says, Confederate reinforcements deployed into battle line at the edge of the woods behind you, behind where the sign is. Anchoring the center of this new position stood a brigade of Virginians, 2,500 strong, under the command of General Thomas J. Jackson. You've probably not heard him by that name. When told the enemy was driving the Confederates, Jackson calmly replied, we'll give them the bayonet. Jackson's determined resistance on Henry Hill drew the attention of General Bernard B. Attempting to rally the remnants of his brigade, B. shouted, look, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Let us go to his assistance. This nickname spread rapidly through the Confederate Army and throughout the South. That's where Stonewall got his name. Why? Because he was a man with an internal locus of control. By the way, he was also a devoted Christian. He was a good Presbyterian man, and he knew where to look for the best example of being self-controlled, of having an internal locus of control. He looked to the Lord Jesus. The moment when many prepare in John 10 to pick up stones and throw them at Jesus. Jesus says these words, and this amazes me. Men picking up stones, taking their coats off, getting ready to start throwing, and Jesus looks at them and says, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I can't imagine him saying that in a heightened sense of fear. He just looks at him plain-faced and says, I've only done good. Why are you going to throw those stones at me? As a shepherd, the man of God cannot be manipulated by what happens to him or around him. He must be in absolute control of his person. The next phrase, respectable. This is from the Greek word kosmios. It's where we get our word cosmos from. Cosmos meaning well-ordered, put together. He's the total package. In your ESV, you see the word respectable. Probably also your NASV, Christian Standard Bible, NIV, 
KJV and New King James uh, use the word good behavior. I like the ASV rendering the best. It uses the word orderly. When you look at the man of God, Timothy, and you're picking out who's going to serve, look for the men who have their world ordered. Like the cosmos, it's well put together. There's a gravity to it. There's something that holds it all together. So men, a little bit of application. Get your life on a schedule. Let it be an aid to you. Schedules are there to serve us. We're not there to serve schedules. But the people of God ought to have their lives well ordered. Are you a carpe diem? You seize the day? Or do you wake up late and the day seizes you? Which one does God want of his shepherds? Respectable. Good behavior. Orderly. The next word, hospitable. It's from two Greek words. Uh, the word phylos, meaning friend, and the word xenos, meaning strangers. So the man of God is to be a friend of strangers. I wrote this down and I've had to read it several times to make sure I get it right. Who are those people that you know that just don't know someone that they don't know? All right, let me say that again. Who are those people that you know that just don't know someone that they don't know? They have a reputation for getting outside and letting those outside come in. Regardless of what they have, they're willing to share it. Rosaria Butterfield, who wrote a very popular book years ago on hospitality, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, said this, Hospitality is not about sharing what you don't have, but about sharing what you do have. The man of God doesn't have to be rich. He doesn't have to have a ton of things that he passes around. But what he does have, he shares. He gives generously. He doesn't meet strangers or no strangers. This is one of the things that I think Jeremy and Diane have always exemplified very well. Their level of hospitality has always been an encouragement to Tammy and I when we think about what we want to be as hospitable persons leading the church of Jesus. Hospitality with self-control and respectability means knowing when to say no as well. The man of God doesn't always open his door and say, yes, come in. Sometimes he says, no, because my priority is with my family, and today they need my assistance and help. So hospitality, no, fr uh, no strangers, a friend of strangers, but also knowing how to be self-controlled. The next phrase, able to teach. Most translations render this able or apt to teach. The NASB, strangely, has this rendering, skillful in teaching. Now this is on a scale, brothers and sisters. When we think about someone who is skillful to teach, we need to realize that in our day, we might be at more of a disadvantage than we realize. The reason is that we have the best teaching in all of the kingdom of Jesus at our fingertips. You can get the best. You want a 10-talent guy? You can get online and find him like that. And you can listen to his sermons from 15 years ago. The best teaching out there. Now, why is that not a blessing? I can think of at least two problems. First, we might set the bar a little too high for the men of God that have varying talents. To one was given five, to one was given two, to one was given one. Well, sorry, my local preacher doesn't preach like John MacArthur. He's a five. I don't think my local preacher's qualified. That's unfair. You can't do that, right? Second problem, 
When we find the best teaching out there, we can, and I'm guilty of this myself, get nourished throughout the week by teaching from a local church of which we're not a member. And God's plan for his sheep was to be shepherded by a local flock in the context of a local church, right? Sheep in this pasture don't get to Amazon Prime their grass from over here, right? They can't, two-day delivery, right? It'll be there. Don't No, it doesn't work that way. The shepherd in that flock is to feed the sheep. And they may not like the food. Why do I keep getting broccoli? I don't want this. Give me the desserts. Give me the good stuff. That's the sheep's problem. Now, I'm not saying that a man of God can't work hard and be studious and be able to teach. That's what it's calling for here. He must be skillful to teach. And in order to do this, he needs to be able to get to the end of the sermon and the people know what he was trying to say. What was the main point of that sermon? Was I able to follow it? Did I understand what he was saying? Do you come away with a sense that you understand the Bible better because you've heard the man of God? Right? These are things that you're looking for when you're looking for someone who is skillful, skillful or able to teach. And this is a qualification of a man who will lead God's people as a shepherd whether he is the primary teaching pastor or not. He must be able to teach and feed, feed God's sheep. But beware, brothers and sisters, that your bar isn't set too high because of teaching that you're getting from outside your local congregation. In verse 3, he's not violent, but he is gentle. This is a contrast. A man given to violence, or is he a man given to gentleness? And this should be easy to see in most men. Which of these two characterizes the man of God's life? You need to make sure also that you're using God's def definitions. I think Big Eva today would say something along the lines of getting angry, chasing people you disagree with. It's like you have a whip in your hand. You're pretending you're doing this all for the kingdom of God. You know, that's not very Christ-like. Now, hang on a sec, and let me read that again and think about it. <laughs> getting angry, chasing people you disagree with around with a whip and pretending it's for the kingdom of God isn't very Christ-like. I'm pretty sure Jesus got angry with people he disagreed with. He chased them with a whip, and I'm pretty sure he sets the example of what Christ-like is. So, not violent doesn't mean he doesn't get violent with wolves. You better believe he does. You better believe he does. He goes after those wolves. We're not playing games. You don't touch these sheep because these sheep don't belong to me. These sheep don't belong to Jeremy. They belong to Jesus. And I want to hear good job well done at the end of all of this so we will be gentle with the sheep but we're going to get violent at times and if we get violent understand it could be that we see a wolf and we're protecting the sheep this is the man of the man of god's job he's to get nasty with those apostates with those false teachers but he's not to be quarrelsome he's not typified by an argumentative attitude those who are argumentative are oftentimes full of pride. They're full of themselves. You may like Donald Trump. You may hate him. The guy loved to argue. This may have been a tactic. It may have been his art of the deal. It could have just been that he was full of himself. I don't know. But men who want to argue all the time, you kind of get this idea that 
At the end of this, I want to be right. At the end of this, I want to be right. And so for those of you men in the room who are command men, let him who has ears to hear hear. Don't let this be what marks you. Don't be the guy who's always got to be right. I'm going to put my word in last, and I'm going to say it the strongest, and I'm going to make everybody else feel like they've got no more room to put in any thoughts. That's quarrelsome. That's not what the man of God's supposed to be. You don't have to be right. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, always. He loves people who are willing to put themselves last. He's also not to be a lover of money. Have you noticed so far in the list of virtues that we've gone through how many addictions the shepherd must have control over that he cannot be given to? He must be sober-minded so he's not a drunkard. He must be self-controlled so he can't have unbridled self-control. He can't be given to his lusts. He must be respectable, meaning his life isn't falling apart and there's chaos. He must be a friend of strangers instead of being self-centered and inwardly focused. He must be gentle, not given to violence and abuse. He must be humble, not a quarreler. He must always be right. This all has everything to do with who or what the man of God serves. Jesus said in Matthew 6, You cannot serve both God and money. One of my favorite early Christian writings is the Didache. This is also known as the teaching of the apostles. If you want to know what was likely written first outside of the canon of Scripture after the time of the writing of the Bible and the canon was closed, the Didache is the earliest writing that we have. Depending on how you date it, between 80 A.D. and 110, 120 A.D. Somewhere in that neighborhood is when the Didache was likely written. It's a very short document. You can put it on about two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper if you font it right. And it basically is a little brochure that they would give to new Christians. And they'd pass it around. You can't keep it. Paper wasn't that ready back then. And so they would read this and it would just give them some basic ideas of what they should do now that they're a Christian. Because back then, we couldn't go to Lifeway and get a Bible. You couldn't order one offline. So I became a Christian. Now what? Well, here's a few thoughts on what you should do. This is what the Didache has to say about whether or not an apostle, a teacher, a preacher, a prophet comes in and begins to teach at your church how you should know whether or not he's a true apostle or he's a false apostle. If he's a true teacher or a false teacher. The Didache says this, Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but he shall not stay more than a single day, or if there be a need, too. But if he stays three days... He's a false prophet. And when he departs, let the apostle receive nothing, save enough bread until he reaches shelter. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Can't be a lover of money. It's pretty serious. I know it's not the word of God, but it's interesting to see how they thought. He can't be a lover of money. They knew. They knew what Paul's qualifications were. We got to know for a fact. Hey, I don't, it, it's not that they can't give him money, but if he's sitting here asking for it, hey guys, that was a pretty good sermon, right? Y'all ready to take up an offering, right? Walk the aisles. He can't do that. He's a false prophet. He must manage his own household well. He must keep his children submissive. I mentioned this earlier, that the household is a microcosm of the larger church. Jesus said in Luke 16, he who is faithful in a little 
will be faithful in much. So, does the man of God have good managerial skills? What do I mean by that? Is he a good macro manager? Not a micro manager. Is he a good macro manager? Does he have the big picture in mind? Does he know how to move a lot of pieces very well, letting the gifts of those sheep come out and bless the church on their own under his guidance? Is he a good macro manager? Can he handle spinning a lot of plates? Does a large workload overwhelm him? Do those under him follow his leadership or do they disrespect him? You can see this especially well in his own home. As the man himself is to be orderly, so his home should reflect that. There are men who shepherd their own hearts well when they are by themselves. And they manage their lives well when they're by themselves. But they have to be able to manage others too. And this goes to the keeping of children in submission. Now a companion passage to this is from Titus 1.6. It reads this way in the ESV. His children are to be believers. His children are to be believers. Now, if you're reading the ESV, this probably raises a good question in your mind. Does the man of God have to have children who are believers, meaning they are Christians? And it's a good question. Why does Paul require submissiveness from the children of the church in Ephesus to which Timothy is going to appoint elders, but to Titus, who's going to Crete, those children have to be believers. Well, the Greek word pistos, which is the word that Paul uses to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.6, means either faithful or believing, but it carries this sense. It doesn't necessarily have the sense of saving faith, but those who are easily persuaded. This is talking about the quality of trustworthiness, faithfulness, reliability, and following, and the following phrases support this reading. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 6, his children are to be, if I render it the way that I prefer, faithful. And then what's the next phrase? Not given to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, if his children are easily persuaded, not given to insubordination, that makes perfect sense. It lines right up. He's to have his home well ordered. It doesn't mean that every time an elder has a baby, well, the elder's wife has a baby, uh, that he's disqualified for the ministry because now he has an unbelieving child in his home. That's not what this means. It does mean that his children are submissive to him, that they are faithful children, that they are obedient, not that they are perfect, but that they are in submission to him. Verses 6 and 7, and we'll close out. He must not be a recent convert. This one's very difficult for me because when I was a young man and I became a Christian at 18 years old, I was immediately put into a place of leadership in our church. And um, I confess to you all that it wrecked a lot of my younger years as a man of God. Those early years with Christ that should have been very special and precious years. And I did fall into the slander and condemnation of the devil. I was appointed too young to serve the youth of the Church of Central Baptist in Bearden, um, down in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the devil took advantage of my pride. He took advantage of my weakness. And he found a way, through a particular circumstance, which God allowed, to begin to try and convince me that I wasn't saved. I fell into deep bouts of depression. 
An elder is one who's been walking with Christ for some time. He's got a track record to show for it. Not just zeal. We see people come into this church in years to come. They're all fired up for Jesus and they can spit the truth like you've never heard. But how long have they been walking with Christ? Chris, I've been married for a year and a half. I love it. I'll never leave my wife. I wonder how many times that's been said. We need a track record to go by. He can't be a recent convert. He also must be well thought of by outsiders. He's got to have a good reputation in and outside of the church. Beloved, the devil's main tactic is to slander us. That's what the name diabolos or devil means. It means slanderer. That's his job. And in order for him to slander the man of God, he's not going to slander to the church. He's not going to slander to God. He's going to come right at the man of God in his weakness, exposing himself as a very pride and arrogant man, as a very foolish man in how he carries himself towards those outside, and he's going to bring slander and condemnation to bear on that man's life. That man's going to suffer for it. When a man is disgraced, the enemy has an opportunity to make claims against his soul that are not necessarily true. But there he is, and he's in the snare of the devil. You know, Bunyan has this clip where he and Hopeful had just been released from Doubting Giant's uh, castle. And immediately after getting released, they wash themselves, they walk along the road, they're all happy and everything, and they get caught in a snare, right? It's the same picture. Pride comes before a fall. Beware, brothers and sisters. Now, there is much more that I could say about being an elder today, and we could go over some of the companion passages in Titus and also in 1 Peter. This gives us a broad overview just today of, to begin thinking of what it may be that this man must be in order to lead at Christ the King. Speaking of Vodi's work, what he must be. Those of you who know Vodi, you know when he preaches and when he writes, he likes to set you up. Um, in the book, What He Must Be, he lists off qualities of a man who would be eligible to marry one of his daughters. And then he again and again points the finger at the dad. His point ultimately is this. If that's what he must be, who must you be? If that's what he must be, who must you be? The boys who will one day marry our daughters must have someone to look to and imitate. Men today are so frustrated. There's nobody out there that's going to be qualified to marry my daughter. Well, the men of God should start acting like men of God and discipling men to be men of God in order that we will have someone to marry our daughters one day. I love Brother John's idea to have the future men group. We need our men to grow up, our young men to grow up to be men. Right? And it's not an age thing. When you're 18, you can now carry a gun and you can now call yourself a man. No. College guys are some of the most childish people I've ever met in my entire life. And I was one once. It's not a man. It's not a man. Paul told the church in Corinth, when at the conclusion of his charge to give up rights for one another he said be imitators of me as I am of Christ the man of God ought to be able to look to the people of God and say I'm following Christ you can you can follow me okay I'm following Jesus follow me 
That's what he said. And we as men of God who lead the church of Jesus ought to be able to say that in every aspect of our lives. So, beloved, I want you to do two things over the next two weeks. First, I want you to hear what the, God, the Word of God says about what he, the pastor, elder, shepherd, preacher, must be. It is your calling at Christ the King. And you are covenantly bound to this local body to affirm and appoint leadership in this church. That's part of our constitution. That is your job. That's one of the things that you must do. You have the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. Jesus gave them to you. So know what your leaders must be and appoint them with wisdom and discernment. But secondly, if you've checked out personally through this sermon, can I encourage you to repent of that? We're speaking of what everyone who desires to be an elder or deacon must be. And elders and deacons are to be examples to the flock. They're to model Christianity for you so that you can walk like Christ. And as we've heard before, we have the leadership that represents us well. So all of these qualities apply to you as the church of Jesus. It's not just what he must be, but what you must be. We're asking that you imitate us as we imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it feeds and nourishes us. And we ask that as we look towards the future leadership of Christ the King, that you would bless us exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. You have been so good to this church. You have given us far more than we deserve. You have blessed us beyond our imagination. Lord, you've got more in your hands to give. We can believe that. We don't need to have a pagan mind that would say, the Lord has been so good to us, he's about to turn on us and it's about to get ugly. That's not what a good shepherd is like. He leads us to green pastures. He takes us to still waters. He protects us. He disciplines us. He restores our souls. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for His own name's sake. Oh, Father, would this be the case as we pursue future leadership for this church? As we look to elders and deacons and what they must be, would you bring, even this week, fresh healthy conviction of what we must be as your people. For no shepherd of yours is an end in himself, but we are all looking to the chief shepherd. We all desire to imitate him and be just like him. And as we've all seen, good leadership can do wonders in helping us to grow and walk with Christ. So please, Give us good leadership. Give us strong leaders. Give us men of God who are not afraid. Men of God who are so strong, so resolute. Their lives are so orderly. There's such a gravitas there that even their wives would be those that laugh at the days to come. That they would be fearless. That all of us together with one voice would praise, glorify, honor, and esteem most highly our King Jesus. Please give us these things and guard our hearts 
against wanting the things of the earth during this season when you have taught us so many years ago, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Bless us now as we fellowship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.